Today's reading is from Revelation 1, 9 through 2, 7. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philippi, or sorry, Philadelphia and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands and among the lampstands was someone like the son of man. Dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys to death in Hades. Write therefore what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the golden lampstands, the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, And your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name, and have not grown weary. Yet, I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But to you who have this, but you have this in your favor, you hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is the paradise, which is in the paradise of God. Did you have a consuming passion growing up? Maybe it was hockey or Transformers. Maybe some of you were the nerds among us who dove into the arts or math. Cabbage Patch Kids, anyone? Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? I see those hands. Just kidding. Maybe it was the boy in the 8th grade class. 
Maybe he was your consuming passion for the year. Maybe you threw yourself into restoring old vehicles, or maybe you found yourself completely enamored for several years with a series of books. Well, when I was growing up, I was passionate about horses. And not just horses, but frankly, living the cowboy life. I'm not kidding. I asked my mom to go to picture. Go ahead, Owen. Next slide. There we go. Now, she couldn't find... Yeah. She couldn't find a, a, a good photo, so she spliced two of them together. This kind of, this is me, folks, for several, actually, more years than I care to admit. I grew up on a farm in northern Alberta. We had six, seven horses, uh, depending on the year. And uh, I loved to ride. And I rode, uh, well, you know, living up north like that, you, you can't ride daily, 365, because it's way too cold. But on the days I could uh, manage it, and certainly there were some cold days, I would, I would ride as much as I could. When I was 10 or 12 years old, my parents wanted to buy me a bike. I didn't want a bike. Who, who rode bikes? Give me a break. I wanted tack for my horse. And I got it. You know, there was, there was several years, and I, my parents were very concerned about my physical posture and a few other things, I'm sure. I didn't even wear running shoes. In fact, I didn't even own running shoes, man. It was cowboy boots or it was nothing at all. You can hear me coming. I joined, I joined Light Horse 4-H for a number of years. In fact, my public speaking career started in 4-H. I think it was a talk on wolves. <laughs> a highlight of my summers was uh, uh, friends of ours in our church uh, managed the government grazing reserve. and they would, There was a number of full-time working cowboys all summer would care for five or 6,000 cows. And they would ride the range every day, eight hours a day. And they would, uh, like, rope and treat cows they could rope and treat out there. And if they were too sick, they'd bring them in. Uh, and I loved it. I'd go out for several weeks in the summer and ride the range. Man, it was awesome. But somewhere in my middle teen years, my passion began to fade. It wasn't that I didn't care about horses anymore. I continued to ride and be involved. But it's just that I began to care about other things more. I... And as I did, I rode less, I read less westerns, I started wearing running shoes, I think I may have even got a bike somewhere in there, I started diving into youth group and into ministry and into missions, and, and my love for the cowboy life, sadly, began to fade. Can any of you relate? Maybe not to that, let's hope, but... Maybe, maybe you can relate in other ways. Maybe the girl of your dreams, the girl that was such a passion for you is now just a distant memory. Maybe uh, a hobby obsession only really now comes to your mind when you see that pile of bins in the corner of your garage and you feel kind of guilty about all the money you spent on that particular obsession. I'm not speaking to any of you here, I know. But that's life, right? Passions shift and interests change and most of the time, that's no big deal. Like, who cares, right? That's just the way we grow, the way we learn. But what about the times when it is a big deal? What about the times when it really does matter? What if, what if the love that's been lost is the love that actually gives meaning and purpose to our lives? What if the love that's been lost is the love that we had for Jesus? What if the love that's been lost is the love that we used to have for others around us in our lives? Well, when that love has been lost, everything's in danger. Today, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about love that's been 
lost. We're here in week three of our, our, our uh, journey through Revelation. We're going to be going through Revelation all this year. And so we're still early in on the series. And I encourage you, if you've just stepped into this mess now, to, uh, to catch up. If you missed a sermon or two or a message or two, it's really crucial. If you actually want to travel through Revelation this year and understand it, it's really crucial that we all start together on the right path. And so the last couple of messages designed, are really designed to do that. That's what chapter 1 is for. And we looked at, very briefly, we looked at how it's important to remember as we travel into Revelation that it's kind of a mix, kind of a mashup of three different genres. The first one we talked about, which Malcolm helpfully alluded to today, is that the, the, the revelation of Jesus Christ is the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. An apocalypse, unlike San Andreas' fault, as fun as those movies are, um, is not, uh, the word was not meant to denote some terrible tragic things happening, but rather the word apocalypse is more like the pulling back of a curtain to reveal something that is there, is present, but has been hidden from our eyes. In particular, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ is meant to draw back the curtain so that Christians, so that people can see that the greatest unseen reality in the present, in the difficult situation these churches are going through, in the difficult situations we're going through, the most important thing to know is that Jesus is present. And the apocalypse, the revelation, is designed to pull back that curtain to reveal Jesus, his presence to us, and where he's taking us into the future. So it's, a rev- it's, it's an apocalypse, a revelation. We also talked about how it's a prophecy, that it's God's word to us. And the whole book of Revelation is a prophetic word to God, created uh, to, from God to us, created to inspire in us present faithfulness, that we would continue to endure and to overcome and to be faithful. And then we also talked about, and this is really relevant today, that it's, it's a letter. That the whole book of Revelation is one long letter. And sometimes that gets lost as we go further into Revelation. It's kind of easy to remember at the start, when Jesus is constantly referring to these churches, and, and now for the next number of months we're going to be getting into these different messages that Jesus gives. Easy, kind of easy to remember it now, but you further and further revelation, and it's easy to forget that this is one long letter written to these seven churches in Asia, as, as Brooke read. And, and, and it follows, the, the, the listing of these churches follows the mail route that someone would take. If you can imagine it, John on Patmos, on this, in his penal colony, he's given, you know, he writes this letter, and he gives it to a messenger, and he says, Tim, please take this to these seven churches. When Tim gets off the boat... The first church that's in his eyesight is Ephesus. It's also the biggest, most influential church and city. But he goes there and then he follows the mail route north and then swings back down to the last church. This is the natural way that they would go. It's written to these churches, written to challenge them and encourage them to remain faithful to Jesus in the midst of increasing pressure, persecution, difficulty, this pressure to conform Pressure to compromise is very strong. And so this letter is written to them. Here at the very start of the letter, after this big, bold vision of who Jesus is, Jesus then takes time to address each of these churches individually. He commends most of them. There's a few that don't get anything good said about them. Yikes. He commends most of them for something. The good ways they're living, the way they're being faithful. He calls most of them to repent and change in some way. Not all of them. Two of them do not get the calls to repent because they're, they're doing well. But this is kind of the form it follows. He commands, calls for repentance or change, and then he challenges them to remain faithful, and he gives promises of what, what, what 
will be given to those who are faithful, who overcome. Each of these opening messages, all seven, reflect Jesus' intimate knowledge of these churches and their social situation, their cultural reality, the pressures they're under. And as he speaks to each individual church, it's designed for the other six churches to listen in and, by extension, for us to listen in. You see, we'll kind of find ourselves as we hear Jesus speaking to these churches. We're going to find ourselves. There's going to be something about a message that Jesus shares with one or more, five, six of these churches that is really going to strike us, both as a community and as individuals, if we're open to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. It's one of the reasons why we've decided that over the next couple of months, our Connect groups, which we're encouraging everyone to sign up for, and lots of them are full, but there's a few more left. Plug, plug, plug. Sign up today. Okay. This is why we're having the connect groups over the next um, couple months look at these seven messages. So today we're looking at this message to the, the, the church in Ephesus. And now this week as our connect groups launch and start, that's what they're going to be looking at. They're going to be looking more deeply. So today we're kind of setting out things and kind of laying, laying out the land. And then what we'll do is when we gather in our connect groups, we'll have an opportunity to dive in deeper, to discuss, to, to try to really hear and listen what the Spirit is, is saying to us. So today let's dive into that first message that, that Jesus gave. It's found in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, and it's on the insert that's inside of your bulletins. Uh, there's also extra Bibles in some of, the, some of the pews there. I encourage you to follow along. So Jesus starts with this church that's the closest to Patmos. It's also the biggest church, too. Ephesus, by the time uh, Revelation was written and delivered, was the capital of the Roman province. It was a city of about a quarter of a million people, so it's not tiny. It's very multi-ethnic, very polytheistic. People are worshipping a lot of different gods, including the emperor Domitian himself. He's worshipped there. Ephesus was also a center of banking and trade throughout the known world. A very, very important city. And this church had become the center of the Christian movement by that point, late in the first century. It was in Ephesus that the Apostle Paul spent more time than he spent anywhere else. And and John, the writer of, of Revelation, he pastored in this church for a while. And tradition suggests that he actually wrote the Gospel of John from Ephesus when he was pastoring there. So this is an important, influential church. It's well-known. It's highly regarded. It's established. It's strong. Other churches would have looked at that church and held it up as, as a model to aspire to. This is really important to know. So Jesus starts with them. I think he starts with them because they're the first place, but I think he also starts with them because, let's be honest, they're, they're the one everyone knows about. And so let's hear what Jesus has to say about those guys. Here's what he says. To the angel in, of the church in Ephesus, write. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. At the start of each message that Jesus gives, the next seven messages, he identifies himself in a particular way, a unique way, mostly drawing from that initial vision at the end of chapter one. He'll draw some aspect out of that vision, usually. And he'll tie it to his message. And it often gives us a clue to what he's saying. So here he, he, he talks about the seven stars, which are the, we talked about last week, or the, the seven angels, but also allude to a belief that people carried that everyone was under sort of planetary influence. 
that it was the stars that determined our fate. And what we see in this picture is that Jesus holds the stars in his right hand. It's not the stars that determine your fate. It's Jesus who influences the course of history. And these stars, in fact, are reinterpreted to point out to be these angels to the churches, which is a little strange for us to hear, but it's a way of representing the authority that Christ has, not only, only over the world, but over, over the church. This is what he's emphasizing here at the beginning. He emphasizes his authority over the church and his intimate presence in the church, among the church. He's walking among these lampstands, which we've already been told are the seven churches. Jesus is present, and he has authority. And so as he speaks, we listen. Now, I want you to notice the phrase, uh, these are the words of him who, or a more literal translation would be just says the one who. Says the one who. This phrase has two reference points. Remember, we've talked about this all along, that we've got to always remember that there's a backstory to almost everything we read in Revelation, and it's usually, almost always, found in the Old Testament. Well, guess what? So is this. This phrase, in the Old Testament, that all the Christians were reading by this point, was the Greek Old Testament. The Septuagint, sometimes it's called. The Greek Old Testament. These words, says the one who, or these are the words of the one who, are the words that are translated over a hundred times in the Old Testament to begin a prophetic oracle from God. Some of you might be more familiar with the phrase, Thus saith the Lord. That's the phrase. Thus says God. Says the one who. And that's how it was translated back in this Greek Old Testament, which everyone has read. The same phrase. So right off the bat, this, these are the words of the one who signals that this is a prophetic oracle. This is a divine message. This is God speaking to his church. But, and this is where Revelation just continues to fascinate me, and I think will fascinate you too. It's more than that, because there's also a cultural reference too. Not only is it this prophetic oracle, it also uses the identical same words in Greek that would come from an emperor writing to a province right into a particular local area, kind of a royal decree. When they would write, not a generic letter to everybody, but if I was wanting to craft a letter, I'm the emperor, and I want to craft a letter, and I want to send it to that group way out there, I would start it, this is how they started it, with these exact words. Says the one who, and then they would go on to describe some aspect of their sovereignty. More than that, the royal decree that these Roman emperors would use, and sometimes Persian kings use a very similar one, would often go on to commend them for ways they've been loyal, to uh, call them on aspects that they've been missing it, to warn what will happen if they don't shape up, and then give promises to the, those who remain loyal. This is what the decree would do. So right here, at the very beginning of the messages, and every single message has this, what's happening? Jesus is reminding them that they're not only hearing a word from their God, they're hearing a word from their king. Remember, we talked about this already, and this is going to come up again and again in Revelation. The people that are receiving this, the the Christians who are following Jesus, are continually faced with someone else who claims to be Lord and God, that's Caesar. But they're following Jesus, who is their Lord and God. And the challenges they're being told by their culture and by the Romans and by the, their social stratas, they're being told that in order to get by in life, they've got to worship Caesar as Lord and God. Here they're being addressed by their Lord 
and God. And he's challenging them, of course, to remain faithful to him. Well, what does Jesus say? First of all, he commends them. I know your deeds, Jesus says. Five of the seven letters, this is how Jesus starts. I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, have found them false. You persevered and endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. This is very high praise, isn't it? From Jesus himself. This group of Christians have been amazing. They work hard. Uh, They haven't given up, even though they have gone through real difficulties, hardships. Because of their faithfulness to Jesus, they've pushed through, though, and, and, and one of the ways they've been faithful is through a diligent, discerning passion for truth. These people, this, this church, think of the kind of people they would have attracted. They weren't willing to just let some sort of charismatic person, some seemingly well-educated people come into their community and then start teaching and spreading ideas about Jesus that weren't true. Now, in that day, it was likely that they were, they were, there was uh, others around suggesting by then that people, that Jesus rather, was, was not really human. They had a problem with that idea that God would become human flesh. Most, all religions do have a problem with that. Uh, if you dig into a whole variety of religions, that's the point you come down to. God could not become human. That's, that's the break point. Well, they have a problem with that. And so they were probably beginning to suggest that Jesus, yeah, we worship him, but he wasn't really a human being. He was sort of like a, like a demigod or sort of like he hovered, you know, he hovered sort of six feet above the earth everywhere he went. He, he wouldn't really suffer. He didn't really have a body. He just looked like it. And this is some of the ideas that were floating around in that time. Well, the Ephesian church rooted out that kind of nonsense with extreme prejudice. They knew the truth. Jesus was a full human being, flesh and blood, born here, lived there, did this, ate food. He was tired when he got tired and he bled when he was hung on the cross. But he was also the divine son of God. That in Jesus, we met the Father. That in Jesus, we saw the Spirit. That the whole Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit were present in Jesus. They knew this. And they held to the truth. And furthermore, they seem to have set themselves against the practices of this little-known group called the Nicolaitans. Which we don't know a lot about, but it seems like this group was likely encouraging a kind of mixed-up spirituality that said, look, you can be a Christian on Sundays. You can, you can worship Jesus, and then during the week you can kind of you know, do what you have to do to get along in life. If you have to make some compromises, you have to pinch a little incense to Caesar, I mean, who cares, right? Do whatever, do whatever you have to do to kind of to kind of get by in life, it's okay. Or maybe a little further than that, it's okay to participate in some of the worship practices in these temples. Eat, you know, eat celebration meals for this God or that God, or maybe even dip into a little, you know, temple prostitution every while, because that's fun. That's the kind of thing they were saying. It's okay to mix it up. We'll, we'll meet them again. Well, this church rejected all that. They knew it was fake. They knew it was false. They had maintained their faithfulness and their purity. And Jesus commends them for that. And so we have to ask the question. We have to. If we're going to heed the question, that, uh, the challenge that every one of these messages ends with, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. We have to ask the question, would Jesus say that about us? 
I mean, could Jesus commend us as a church, Erickson Covenant Church, could he commend us for this? You know, would he look us in the eyes and say, man, you guys have been awesome. You have kept at the work of loving others, of serving sacrificially, and you haven't given up. Could he say that about us? Have we cultivated, as a church, a discerning posture toward teachings and ideas that claim to be Christian, but really, in fact, aren't? Do we even have the ability to discern the difference between those? Are we able to recognize false or even faulty teaching? Do we even care enough, actually, to be growing in our understanding of our faith? Or has it been good enough for us to just sort of say, yeah, I believe in Jesus, I'm not really, I'm not really into all the complication, I just want to keep it simple, and, and yet, as a result, we don't really understand what it is that we believe. Have we, would Jesus say, have we pushed through resistance and remained faithful, even in times when it's been difficult, where following Jesus has required difficult decisions out of us? differences we've had to make in our family priorities, changes we've had to make in the way that we uh, spend our money. Have we, have we been faithful under the pressure of, to shut up at work, to, to not talk about your faith to your friends, just the social pressure that we are under? Or have we pushed through that even when it's been difficult or hard? Well, maybe we'll have an opportunity to come back to some of those questions. But I think we have to ask that question. Would Jesus commend us for the same? Well, I, I think in some ways he would. And then probably in other ways he wouldn't. We have to ask the question. We have to let Jesus speak that to us. And we have to be willing to consider. Well, so Jesus commands them. But then the shocker comes. After hearing these good words, let's be honest, I think everyone who's listening at this point is going, yeah, we knew it. They are a great church. Man, I wish I didn't live in Smyrna. <laughs> I wish I lived in Ephesus. I'm going to go there for the winter. You know, everyone's thinking, I want to be part of that church. And I think the Ephesian church is kind of going, you know, yeah, Jesus, you're right. (laughs) But then the shocker comes. Really. Jesus comes out of nowhere, I think, and he levels this church with a stinging, surprising rebuke. And I don't think they were expecting this. I really don't. Jesus says, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. What a punch in the gut. I can just hear it. I can hear it in my own, my own mind. What do, you, what, what, what do you mean, Jesus? I mean, look at all that we're doing. Look at the ways we're reaching people in our city. Look at, the, the, look at how our church has grown. I mean, didn't you just say we've been faithful? We've persevered? Did, didn't you just commend us for staying true to the gospel? Wasn't that what we were supposed to be doing? What do you mean we've forsaken our first love? And yet here it is, all the good they've been doing. And it is good. It's very, very important that we don't somehow turn around and act as though it wasn't good. It was good. Jesus said it was good. But all the good they've been doing had masked over a deeper loss. A loss of a passionate love for Jesus. And without that love to sustain our life, all will be lost. Without a passionate love for Jesus, the good news about Jesus will begin to fade. It'll suddenly no longer be in the conversation anymore. It'll no longer drive what we do. It'll no longer get us up in the morning and keep us going through the day. When that passionate love for Jesus has been lost, all is lost. But let's be really clear here. 
Jesus is not critiquing them for their concern with truth. He commends them for it. This can't be interpreted as a hit to concern for orthodoxy or concern for truth. What Jesus brings out is that the very heart of the Christian life, love must be our motivation. And love was somehow no longer motivating them. And without love for Jesus, their commitment to the gospel was unsustainable. It wouldn't last. I had to ask the question of myself as I considered that this week. Why is truth, the truth about who Jesus is, the truth about the gospel, why is it unsustainable without love? Why is that true? I think this is so important. The reason why the truth about Jesus, you know, who he is and what he's done, can't be sustained without love for Jesus is because Christianity is not only about believing some things about Jesus. It is that. It does involve that. But it's not only that. Christianity is about entering into a trusting relationship with Jesus. Another way of putting this is that the truth of Christianity is inherently relational. We believe and trust in Jesus Christ. A real person. Our doctrine and our beliefs about Jesus aren't just ideas that can sort of be swapped out or ignored. That's what happens when the relationship has been lost. Truth can't be sustained outside of this real, dynamic, growing relationship with Jesus. And actually, this is one of the reasons why Christianity is so irreligious, so non-religious. You could even say anti-religious. Because religion is based on us performing certain things, believing certain things, doing certain things. And Jesus says, that's great, but if the relationship has been lost, all is lost. The truth cannot be sustained. The life, the good things in this Ephesian church would not be sustained outside of a growing, dynamic, loving relationship with Jesus. Well, just like we've already asked the question about what Jesus said positive, we we have to ask the same question here. Would Jesus say this about us? Is Jesus saying this to us? Is the love we had at first for Jesus, the love that woke us up at night, the the love that drove our curiosity, the love that for some of us caused us to read through the entire Bible in a weekend, that kind of love that just couldn't get enough, we just soaked in it, We, we wanted to have conversations about Jesus, we wanted to go everywhere Christians were gathering, we were just so excited about this love we had discovered, this love that Jesus had for us. We were so excited about Jesus that we just kept talking about him. Nothing else seemed to matter. We would rearrange our whole schedule just to go to a Bible study. We'd sign up for three or four. That kind of compelling excitement that caused us to serve others, to serve our neighbor, to serve a friend, to serve in the community as a direct expression of our love for Jesus. And we knew that when we, when we served that person a meal next door, or when we came to serve in children's ministry, or we, we participated in mentoring the youth, we knew we were doing it because we loved Jesus. We looked forward to gathering to worship because it was just exciting to put a voice to our hearts, to express in community the love that we have for Jesus and more importantly, the love that he has for us. Well, the question is, is that passion still there or has it waned over time? You know, what's really struck me about this Ephesian church is that there was no gross sin. There's no overt stupidity going on here. Jesus will get to some of that. 
But in this church, there wasn't. Everything was great. Everything was awesome. I mean, if you looked at this church, if you looked at these Christians' lives, you'd say, man, they have nailed it. Obviously, they love Jesus. Look at the way that they're serving others. Look at the way that they're upholding truth. Look at how much they know about the Bible. And they can quote stuff. It's crazy. But somehow, Jesus didn't come to this church and simply evaluate their religious performance. He doesn't just want Christians, people who will do certain things for him. He wants us. He wants them. He wants a relationship. Jesus loves us. And that's one of the powerful things we're going to hear through these messages again and again, that Jesus shows up in the middle of the church because he loves us. And he speaks sometimes very difficult words to us because he loves us. Because this Jesus who says, you've forsaken the love you had at first, is that Jesus who says, I love you. I want to love you more. And I want you to experience my love. But you can't do that if you've forgotten about me. If somehow you've gotten so busy doing stuff and other priorities have crept in and somehow you, you maybe you're still going through the motions, but the love has been lost. It no longer expresses a relationship. And so Jesus who's right in the middle of the church, who's right here today, right present among us, he cuts through all the stuff, all the amazing good things that are going on, and he recognizes that the heart itself has stopped beating. The body's still moving, but there's no more blood being pumped. And they can't continue for long in that state. So what does Jesus do? He comes to them and he calls them to wake up. To realize what's happened. Consider how far you have fallen, Jesus said. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, and this is crazy, listen to this. If you do not repent, if you don't change, if you don't turn around and say, I'm not just going to do this stuff. I need to have a heart for Jesus and a passion for Jesus. I need to wake up in the morning and realize my life is in His hands and I am going to live as an expression of my love for Him. If I don't do that, if you don't do that, Jesus said, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. This is crazy. You know what Jesus is saying? If you don't get love right, if you don't get love back in the center of your life as a community, you will no longer be my community. You'll cease to be the church. You might still get together and sing some songs, have a bake sale, but you won't be the church anymore. You might think you're the church, but you'll just be going through religious motions with no relationship. But I you have this in your favor. He kind of circles back to a... Our love may not be right, but we've got our hates right. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans. Not hate the Nicolaitans themselves, you understand, but you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So what are they supposed to do? There's three things. Daryl Johnson, who I follow pretty closely as I've studied through Revelation, um, Daryl Johnson says uh, it can be captured in three things. Remember, repent, and redo. And I thought those were great, so let's just go through them. And we're going to just um, rip through these, and then let's take a few moments for Q&A today and for discussion, okay? So, heads up, if you've got some questions, we'll dive into them in a minute. So first, remember, this is the call to consider how far they've fallen. In other words, look at the gap between the way it was and the way it is. Remember what it was like when you first discovered that Jesus loved you. Remember what it was like when you first realized that you didn't have to stay stuck in the muck, 
that Jesus had rescued you. That you had come to understand your identity, which our kids are looking at, in Christ. That you aren't just defined by your sin and your brokenness and your stupidity. But Jesus says, no, 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 I got it all covered. I already died for that. I want to give you life. And he gave us his Holy Spirit and he ignited in us a passion for life and for purpose. And and we realized everything had changed. Can you remember what that was like? Can you remember what it was like in the night to wake up and realize that you were loved? To realize that your relationship with Jesus had changed everything? Do you remember what it was like? He's calling them to consider the change, to remember to look back and remind yourself of the way you acted when you first realized that Jesus loved you. What was that like? To spend some time considering that, reflecting on that. Think about how much you told others about your faith. Think of how unshy some of you shy folks were in those first few weeks or months that you realized that Jesus loved you. So as you consider, as you remember, is there a gap? And if there is a gap, Jesus says, you need to repent. In this case, this is quite unique, I think. The repentance for this church is not repent from idolatry or repent from you know, sleeping around or, or, or repent from double dealing. It's not this kind of overt stuff. It's, it's truly a repentance of the heart. Where you're saying, you've got to turn around in your heart. You've got to go back. That's where he goes next. You've got to go back and recapture the love that you had at first. Which happens as we recapture the love that Jesus has for us. So remember to repent and then to redo. To go back. To say, you know what? These are the kind of things that shaped my life when I first understood Jesus' love for me. These are the kind of things I was involved in. I took long walks with Jesus. I read the scripture lots. I was, I was involved in community. I got a mentor. I signed up for an online course. I did whatever I wanted to know. And I realized that lots of those things have slipped from my life. Now I make it to church every once in a while. I, I don't remember the last time I picked up my Bible. It's just faded. He says, you know what? If you want to recapture that love, you've got to go back and start doing some things that represent that kind of love. You've got to go back and start, you know, setting some dates in the calendar and pursuing some activities and getting back into community and and connecting with others and praying and asking God to restore you. When love's been lost, the only way forward is back to where you began. This is what Jesus is telling the church. That when love has been lost, the only way forward is back to where you began. And this is what he's calling this church to, and maybe for some of us, it's what he's calling us to. We have time for a few questions. Thoughts? Oops, I just kicked my water over. Uh, there's a microphone back there. Uh, yeah, Ethan's going to walk around. So, Michael, speaking of the microphone, because not only uh, is that better for us here, but then on the recording, people will understand what I'm responding to. Mike. I was just, uh, as you were saying about not um, not sustainable, it made me remember how important it is because, you know, truth can be forgotten, truth can be dulled, but it's those experiences we have in those relationships, those, those things that bring us that joy, um, that help keep us going uh, in the face. I just wanted to share that thought. Thank you, Michael. 
Anyone else want to make a comment? Maybe you've got a question about the text itself that we looked at today. Um, but maybe if you'd like to talk about how that resonates with you in terms of recapturing love. Anyone? We haven't done Q&A for a little while, and this is throwing you off. I know it. I'm going to try to do it more. It'll be a challenge. But yeah, behind you, uh, Hannah. Why was only one letter mentioned? Why was only... Okay, um, actually, can you say that in the microphone again, Hannah? Because I don't you didn't hear me. Well, yeah, the last part you said. Can you just say it again? So there's seven messages. There's going to be seven of them that look just like this one, so to speak. It's like Jesus wrote a big letter to seven churches, and then it's like he penned a little personal note to each of them. That's what this is. This is like the personal note to the Ephesian church, but it does link to the whole letter, which is to the whole church. So think of it, this is the way to think of it. Think of it as, because this is how they do it, them reading it out loud in their worship service. It takes about 90 minutes. When they got together, someone read this thing. So in each of these seven churches, the whole letter of Revelation was read. Think of how they'd perk up when he's talking to us now. Oh, whoa. And, and think of how it would strike them. Think of how it would challenge them. Think of how it would encourage them. We're going to hear a lot of differences between these churches, but it's meant to really help them know that the whole letter is written to them by this personal word that Jesus speaks to them, all seven of them. Does that make sense, Hannah? Thanks. Great question. Any other questions about what's going on here or the, just the general challenge? You're saving your questions for your connect group leader, aren't you? And they're so excited that you would do that. Anyone else? Great. Thanks, Ethan. Well, there's your warning. I will try to do more uh, Q&A discussion as we go through this. So you may have some, some questions. Now, now I'm thinking that some of the connect group leaders might be the ones wanting to ask the questions so that they're ready for their group. Uh, it is an opportunity for us to continue the discussion, so I encourage you to do that. Jesus ends each one of his messages with a call to listen and a promise to those who overcome, an encouragement. For the letter uh, to the Ephesian church, he says, Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. It's quite a promise. What had been lost, if you remember back to the story, some of us are less familiar with the whole Bible thing. The story, the early story was because um, humans had rejected God's leadership in their lives, there had been a a break in the relationship. And that break in the relationship made it so that they, they no longer had the right to eat from this tree of life. And death ensued in their lives, relationally, Physically, personally, spiritually, death reigned. In particular, they were banned from the garden. They couldn't. And, and the reason why they were banned is so they wouldn't eat that tr- tree. And, and then I think because they eat it and they kind of have life, but it wasn't right life. It wasn't redeemed life. And so they're banned from it as an act of grace. Well, here at the end, the promise given is that 
they will now be given the right. In other words, the relationship has been restored. Sin has been dealt with. All the muck and the crap has been shoveled out and covered over by Jesus. And so he's saying, as you stay faithful to me, in particular to them, as you are victorious in love, as you stay true to who I am, as you continue to pursue a relationship with me, as you don't get caught off guard by a surprise attack from the enemy because your heart has stopped beating, rather, you lean into your relationship with me and guess what? You'll find that in the end, everything will have been restored. And you'll you have the right to eat from the tree of life. And at the end of Revelation, there's this beautiful picture of the tree of life present there in this new Jerusalem that descends. Beautiful picture given of a restored relationship. But as we consider the Ephesian church, we realize that this, this overcoming that Jesus is calling them to, it can't happen. They will not overcome through a simple pursuit of all the things they're doing that are good. They can't overcome unless they deal with their lost love. That the only way to be victorious in life is to be victorious in love. This is the message that Jesus is sending to the church in Ephesus. This is the message he wants all the churches to hear. This is the message he wants us to hear. That to be faithful in life, to be an overcomer, to be able to... um, Resist the pressures and not conform to stay faithful to Jesus. We have to be people who say love has to be at the center of who we are. A love for Jesus and a love for each other. A love that holds us true. A love that holds us together. This is the message that Jesus sends to this church and it's what he's saying to us today. And so we finish today really with the same words that Jesus said. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to us, to the Erickson Covenant Church. Our prayer today is that we would be victorious in love that we'd be able to identify ways that we've forgotten or forsaken the love and that we would come back. And for those of us who haven't actually said yes to following Jesus, where some of the realities I described, that's still uh, not been your experience. You're checking things out. I want to ask you today that if that's the case and if you're ready, you can experience the first love of coming to know Jesus that you can say yes to following Jesus and have his Holy Spirit fill you and redeem you and forgive you. And so for each one of us, we're being called to love, to experience his love and to have his love fill us and shape us. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to us. Let's pray. Jesus, we are thankful for today. Thankful that you speak from the middle of the church, from the middle of the mess, that you speak words of life, and love and truth to us. Because you long for us as a church to be vibrant and alive in your love. I pray today that you would take this message and you would apply it to our lives, to our hearts, and that we would be awakened to hear and respond to your call to love. In your name we pray. Amen.